Welcome to Many Lumens, where we talk about and find meaning in the intersections of art, social change, and popular culture. I'm your host, Mayori Carmel Holmes. In this conversation, I am joined by writer and filmmaker Dream Hampton, whose career I've followed for over two decades. Our talk evokes the intimate dimensions, cost, and rewards of being committed to Black radical politics. We talk about her early hip-hop influences, growing up in Detroit, writing and making films, the necessary practice of tuning out the trolls, and finding refuge amidst the chaos. Welcome to the very first episode of Many Lumens, and I'm really excited to have you, Dream Hampton, as our first guest, which I know you weren't planning on, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I know. It. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> but I'll try. <laughs> Hi, Maori. I'm so honored. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, I realized in doing the research how long I've been interacting with your work, even before we like really, really knew each other. And it's been quite mm-hmm. a long time. So I'd never, you know, asked you personally how your parents came to your name. And so in some of the research material, it seems like it came from Martin Luther King's March on Washington speech. And I was wondering if that's factual and yeah. <laughs> also <laughs> whether or not you'd ever considered changing your name as so many, you know, conscious folks did in the 90s. Yes, I considered changing my name recently. I can't remember which Twitter disaster I was involved in, but I remember sending out an email and telling everyone that my new name was Pam. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting Pam. (laughs) Yes, I figured it was one syllable, like dream. And yeah, and for a long time, I was trying to get everyone to call me Pam, and no one would. (laughs) So no, I never had the conscious, like, Afrocentric um, choice, but I have definitely wanted to have... and, And whenever I'm ordering anything, I use my daughter's name. In fact, my favorite coffee... One of my favorite coffee shops. Um, I walk in and they're like, "Hey!" and they call me my daughter's name. And I keep I keep thinking if I come in with her, she's gonna be so mad. <laughs> she knows I use her name, but now I'm full on like interacting as her. Um, yeah, I mean, my dad, he, Dr. King, um, was invited. I'm pretty sure it must have been Reverend Dale Franklin who invited him to Detroit uh, because of some strike that was happening Mm -hmm. on Woodward Avenue. And he test ran the I Have a Dream speech here first. And Mm -hmm. my father was there. um, And that's where my name came from. I didn't learn it until near my father's death. And I said it in an interview and it became this, it became a thing. Yeah. But I don't, it's not like I go around saying that, but it is true. That's where my dad got the name from. That's really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> what did like baby dream, you know, the your first memories of what you wanted to do with yourself, however old you were, what, what were those early pursuits? Well, I remember baby dream being told that I wasn't going to have any friends if I always had to be the doctor and the teacher. (laughs) Um, And so I totally remember my mom 
basically getting in trouble for like directing my friends. And I remember looking (laughs) at my friends, which included my little brother and being like, you don't expect them to be the teacher, do you? Like it was (laughs) was just the worst. So, and, and then I remember in my 20s, my friend Greg Tate telling me that I had the kind of, personality that would be good for teamsters <laughs> that's great it's all terrible right so like bossy dream trying to like create scenarios and organize everybody to either play or to protest I can remember when microwaves came <laughs> to our family household And I don't know what I saw, but I was just like, they're bad for you. Um, And they're good, you know, and we have to tell our parents to take their microwaves back to the store. Uh, (laughs) I had a circle. And there's a picture of me, like, looking with my eyebrows all furrowed. So I don't know. I was, like, the worst. Probably still am. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to make film for as long as I can remember. And I can't remember wanting to do anything before that. Mm-hmm. I first became acquainted with you when we screened I Am Ali as part of this women in hip hop program I did in 2004. Um, and I remember being really taken with the boldness of the, that work. It was so lyrical on structure. The cinematography, I thought, was like nothing I had seen before. I had already had a huge crush on Ishmael Butler. <laughs> and then I thought he did this like wonderful job. And then, of course, you know, on top of all that, you had Anjanu Ellis, who is yeah. one of the most brilliant actors, you know, who just does not get enough work. But I mean, she's so incredible. And I wanted to ask you how you came up with the story and how did you assemble this cast? And, you know, how did you come to work with AJ? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. That film came to be because I had witnessed, you know, two men who were fairly close to me rapidly disintegrate into what then was called schizophrenia. Um, Both of them were hearing audio, like hearing oral commands Mm -hmm. in their heads. And they always, like my one friend got arrested upon the Grand Concourse for telling this woman that he was Jesus and to give him her car. And he got, like, he was in Rikers for grand larceny. Um, and another friend, uh, my friend in Detroit, was said that Buddha had told him to, like, paint this basement wall with his feces. I mean, just, it was, you know, so it was, like, severe mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were two very popular, like, handsome men in their 20s who fell off of this cliff in their mid-20s. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, why don't they hear voices from, like, their superintendent or, you know, in their building or their uncle? You know, why is it Jesus and Buddha, you know? And then I started thinking about, like, who is that for us? And this is where the Muhammad Ali story came in. Um, I remember working with Q-Tip early on the ideation. He had a really good Muhammad Ali impression. And we were going to do it together. And then I was going to do it with Dante, with Mostef. And both of them kind of flaked on me. And Ishmael, who um, I was very close with, um, stepped in and killed it. And AJ was my friend, you know. Um, Around the same time that I'm writing, I'm meeting people like Greg Tate. 
and who I met at a new music seminar. He and Joan Morgan came <laughs> up to me. <laughs> yeah, new music seminar. They came up to me and told me they liked something that I wrote. It might have been the Dr. Dre editorial in the source. And um, I became really good friends um, with Greg. And so Greg Tate and Arthur Jaffa, AJ, were friends. And I became like the Elaine in that circle. And AJ shot Ayam Ali for me. I want to, you know, bring us up to the present. But the other thing is that I realized I programmed two additional works of yours <laughs> along the way. Yes. And so, you know, what I know about next is your documentary about Black August, which mm-hmm. was also a concert that you had been producing. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Treasure, which was your documentary in 2015, which, of course, we had at Black Star. I won an award at Black Star. <laughs> I was so sick that night, but I won Best Documentary, and I was so happy. It's the only film, the award that that film won. Um, I didn't submit it to anything, really, but I won that, and that was amazing. And that night, I also won the Rich Nichols Award at Black Star. Um, Black August, yes. I was a part of a collective, um, an organization, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. And we were all reacting to the kind of incessant um, terror of the NYPD. At the same time, we were trying to like not be in all reactionary mode. So we did like clothing drives and stuff like that. But our two flagship things were like Cop Watch, Know Your Rights, um, and the um, Black August Hip Hop concert, which was a benefit concert that we um, did every year for, I think, 12 years. At least I was a part of it for 12 years um, to raise awareness and money, funds for political prisoners, U.S. political prisoners. And so we used to do hip-hop concerts in New York and then Cuba. That was the first seven years. And then we went to South Africa and Venezuela. And there was just all this footage, um, some that I had shot, some that people like Martha Diaz had shot. I believe I gave Martha a co-director credit on that. And we just assembled like all this footage and put it together and thought it was important to document it. And now I feel that way even more so. It's an uneven film. I really like the parts in South Africa, though, um, where we're kind of being called out on our, you know, on the American way that we parachute in and kind of, you know, become the white people of black people, mm-hmm. you know, Um so that's in the film. But more than that, I'm happy that we documented it because Gen X's are being totally erased. Yeah. <laughs> you, you would think that Black folks went from like, most people say the civil rights generation. So they're also erasing the Black power mm-hmm. generation of the 70s and 80s. But they, it's like only thing happened in the 90s was hip hop. Right. You know, I'm like, yeah, no, we shut down New York for like a hundred days for Amadou Diallo, but okay. <laughs> we didn't have social media, but okay. Um, so that's what Black August. And then Treasure, you know, that was a really hard story that happened in the community um, of a sister being brutally killed after being set up by the police. Um, this young trans girl. Um, and uh, Natasha T. Miller, a poet in Detroit, you know, came to me with an idea for a story. Um, she was calling, she was saying she wanted to do something on transsexual prostitutes. And I didn't think that was Treasure's story. And 
so, you know, I did know that there was something to talk about in terms of transgender justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, not just the sex work that Treasure did, but the kind of organizing she did at the Ruth Ellis Center and the kind of work that she got roped into doing for the police as a, in this one night where she interacted with them because um, of a blunt. And so it, it all of these issues kind of um, come together in Treasure's story, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, drug laws that make no sense. Like, no one should be interacting with you. No policeman should be even coming near you when you're smoking a blunt, you know? There's no reason to interact with the police over friggin' marijuana. Um, she was in a hotel in the suburbs where she sometimes did sex work. Um, she had this identity of being like a black girl who was also trans and from Detroit. And she was made to do dangerous CI work with the threat of going to a men's jail or like setting up her drug dealer, you know? Mm. Um, and that cost her her life. And so that was the story I tried to tell a treasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a really powerful film and... Uh, you were the first ever Richard Nichols um, Luminary Award, which I thought he would have found really funny. And so <laughs> we thought it was great that um, that it was awarded to you. There is something in that you and I are both close to Tarana Burke and she yeah. we're often talking about I'm like at the end of Gen X, but I was present enough to do some of that organizing with y'all. And I, I agree that Gen X is it's kind of it's erased because we didn't have Instagram, you know, and so mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. But that is our job. Is well, not we to also had hip hop. Mm-hmm. So hip hop became such a big story, you know that it becomes the only thing. I mean, even in my own personal narrative, you know, it's like whatever little interaction, it could have been big, whatever interaction I had with hip hop becomes like the biggest thing Mm -hmm. in my bio. Like I I went in over my birthday this couple weeks ago and tried to change my wiki so that it wouldn't say um, all this dumb hip hop stuff. And there's like some wiki police guy who like every time you changed it, he reverted it. And then he was, he hit me like, what are you trying to do? <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to get this hip hop stuff out of here. And of course I'm saying it through someone else's account because you can't be yourself. Right. But anyway, that's the problem with our generation writ large is mm-hmm. that hip hop occupies so much space mm-hmm. that like looking back in terms of activism, people think we were all just like, wanting to be puff or I have no idea what people think, but I'm like, yeah, a lot was happening just like with any generation. Yeah. In recent years, you've been producing and directing nonfiction series, including Finding Justice and perhaps the most widely known for recent work, Surviving R. Kelly, for which you were awarded a Peabody Award and nominated for an Emmy. I want to ask you just, you know, not to talk about it too long, but I I read that you regret it not digging more deeply into, you know, the presence of teenage girls from that cover story you did on R. Kelly back in 2000. And one of Mm -hmm. my questions was just, do you think anyone would have published that? Like if you had gotten, you know, more deeply into that story before Derogatis and, you know, say you'd written an editorial or something, would anyone have published it? Well, I think the more important question is why wasn't it more of a flag for me, you know? 
by 2000, I had been in countless like record sessions, right? Like, I mean, I literally remember Mary, you know, doing background vocals for Father MC. And so like as far back as like 91, you know, mm-hmm. having record sessions and Mary couldn't have been 18, 217 when she was doing vocals for Father MC. So I'd never been in studios where there weren't young people in the studios, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it was clear that these weren't artists or I don't know what was clear. I mean, what was clear when I began making the film was that he operates with a series of locked doors. Um, so, and that's what I remember. I remember a glimpse of like a room with like some sleeping bags, mm. but I don't, and I'm not trying to make excuses for myself, but I don't know that even that would have been like, I can remember total spending the night at the studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, Biggie lived in the studio when he was making his albums, you know? Um, but I remember a door opening and there being these girls in sleeping bags. Yeah. Um, and yeah, why didn't I just stop and say, what's going on in here? You know, um, would Danielle Smith, who was the editor of Vibe, would she have printed that? I think she would have. Mm, okay. I think it would have been, it would have like what your goddess had to do. I would have had to do what he did. So he was not an investigative reporter. He was a music critic who got this piece of information and then became an investigative reporter. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I would have had to become like an investigative reporter. Um, And I failed to do that then, but I had to become that to do Surviving R. Kelly. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit, and I, I imagine you developed these techniques, you know, over the past 20 years or so, but... Are there any unique approaches you have for collaborating with protagonists in your film? I know there are a couple of things from Surviving R. Kelly that happened, but is there anything that you feel like is like the Dream Hampton method, you know, for the ways in which you involve protagonists or in the case of Treasure, their families or mm-hmm. anything like that? You know, it definitely varies from piece to piece. You know, with Finding Justice, I wanted to center organizers and activists who I knew. So that was really collaborative and rewarding, you know, mm-hmm. with treasure, you know, because I did have Buna Murray did have the resources and required like a particular protection around that show. And by protection, I mean, legal, um, I was able to like listen and be patient in these interviews. And they, and so were, by the way, the, the women, I mean, more so it was them and their grace and patience, but it wasn't a bonding situation. Like I, um, typically didn't pre-interview them, even if I was listening to the pre-interviews, mm-hmm. um, I wanted my interaction with them on, on camera to be the first kind of interaction. I needed distance from them because I, I needed to, um, sadly like depose them you know because of the legal requirements of that film Mm. so that by legal requirements I mean that questions were vetted by attorneys many attorneys you know um so that they weren't leading there was so much there was like 110 percent chance that that we would get sued with that film or that series so um that means that if someone tells you something happens 
you almost have to be like a prosecutor or the, you know, I hate to say this, but like the police, like, was anyone else present when this happened? Do you remember the day that it happened? Do you remember that what you wore? Do you remember telling anyone that it happened after it happened? Okay. What's that person's name and number is like contact tracing. With documentaries, are there expectations that aren't always realistic? And I shouldn't just say documentaries. Like, I don't know. I can remember Danny Boyle and them kind of getting dragged pre-internet for the fact that some of the kids from Slumdog still lived in the slums Mm. after the film was made. And I can remember similar conversations around that film that Tom Hanks made in Somalia. And so I know that there's this idea in both spaces, scripted and unscripted, that like a project is going to change someone's material conditions, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's just a hard one, you know? Yeah. That kind of leads into, I had a, a, this morning I was just, you know, doing my daily reading and there was Mm -hmm. an article that Cecilia Alderondo, who did that brilliant film Landfall this year, she wrote about not getting into nonfiction film to make money, but rather having, quote, fallen in love with the serendipity of discovering the world through image and sound and believing that documentaries could trigger political awakening, which I think is also related to this idea of changing people's material lives. And I'm curious for you, do you feel like nonfiction or, to your point, also fiction films still hold this kind of power? Like, is there any optimism for you in what film can do? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. I think more about this idea about being featured in a project means that it's it's gone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that you're about to be a star and that you're going to have your own shows and that. So those expectations are more about more what I'm thinking of when I think of some of. But yeah, I hope that not I hope I know, for instance, I mean, we just did a report at Color of Change, an organization that I on the board of um, and that I consult around their Hollywood work where we call Normalizing Injustice, where we looked at um, two seasons of police procedurals, you know, and so we know that there are real life effects on like the narratives and the stories that are being told and people's material condition. Mm-hmm. And here I'm thinking like in the negative, you know, um, we know that the kind of sentences that people get when they stand before a judge, we know that jurors like, you know, show up to voir dire and quote CSI. You know what I mean? Like people's idea of the criminal justice system is absolutely shaped by these police procedurals they've been watching. People's ideas of America the world over are shaped by, you know, Hollywood's America's one, you know, profitable export, which is Hollywood narratives. Right. I mean, the other only other thing America's been selling for the past decade is debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I know that to be true. Um, and I know that there's been talk about the kind of real world impact that documentaries can have. Um, and we, I remember when I talked to Brie Bryant, for instance, around Lifetime. You know, I, I was very honest about my, you know, my position on R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. 
And I said that I wanted this project to do what Blackfin did at CNN, which was to shut down SeaWorld, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. That I knew that there was a Mute R. Kelly campaign that had already been been, be, been founded by two women who were brilliant and had strategy. And, um, and that, you know, what I did ultimately, I wanted to, to support those efforts, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, you know, do it through the truth of these women's stories. I don't know that the impact being like him being in jail um, is, I don't know that that was what I thought could happen or would happen or even should happen. You know, I don't think that there's some alternative, you know, for him that he was interested in, in some kind of other restorative process with the women that he's harmed or that he's even ever going to admit that he harmed them, Mm -hmm. you know? You're listening to Mini Lumens, brought to you by Blackstar. We glorify war when we should glorify peace. This is Dream Hampton, and you're listening to Many Lumens with the bright, bright star, Maori K. Holmes. So we're going to take a slight departure, and this is something that I'm always really interested in, which is people's astrology. And (laughs) (laughs) I know that your sun is in Virgo, and I believe you have an Aquarius rising or moon, right? You know what I learned about talking about your chart? Mm. And this is only for people who have people that troll them. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry about this. You're lovely and have not, don't have trolls earned or unearned, (laughs) but they can like figure out so much with this information. (laughs) But yes, I have an Aquarius Capricorn rising. Okay. And my son is progressed, has progressed into Scorpio 10 years ago. So yes, I'm absolutely a Virgo, but my good friend, Sam Reynolds, who everyone should be following on Twitter, <laughs> says <laughs> that I have pro- I progressed into Scorpio like 10 years ago. And I have a ton of planets in Scorpio. But okay. what what is your astrology? What are you where are you taking this? <laughs> well, it's I'm glad you brought that up because, well, there were a couple of things. One was that um, I think you and I have discussed this before, but but with that Aquarius and that Virgo, it was like there's absolutely no way that you couldn't be, you know, young dream with the furrowed brow, right? Like you have to be concerned with justice <laughs> because both of those signs 
signs are in pursuit of it. And so having them as your dominant, you know, makes, you know, of course makes it that you're going to be concerned with that. And then I think about this moment that we're in and it is black women Virgos, you know, you, Tarana, Adrian Marie Brown, Beyonce, Ava, like all of you, <laughs> Amy Sherald, you know, you're going to save us, right? Like there's something about this moment that is your moment. We are not going to save you, no, you know you're going to like annoy people to death. <laughs> It really, you know, it's, it really is the, um, it's the other, like, so if Virgo and Gemini are both ruled by Mercury, mm-hmm. um, Gemini's have been, they're the charming ones, you know, they're the ones, I don't know, it's the difference between like IQ and Nas, you know, like one of them has a personality, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it's, it's the Gemini, right? It's like, Geminis are liked and beloved. You know what I mean? Like, Joe Morgan Pete can be as critical as I am about the same dude or men, but she has, she's like, she's a, she adds seduction to it and she smiles. And everyone's like, I love you, Joan. And then they're like, Tree's a hater. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't and realize I didn't have to use Nas. I know people think I hate Nas. Rock him, who I friggin' love. Also, no personality. I think he's a Virgo. So yeah, I mean, yes. I hope that Virgos save us. You know what I heard and believe about Aquarius is that Aquarius are concerned about the people, but not people. Mm. <laughs> Which is so. <laughs> Okay. Which is like so scary because I sometimes when I think of that Che Guevara quote of like, you know, to serve the people, you have to love the people. And I'm like, I'm not sure I love y'all. Like, you guys <laughs> get on my nerves. <laughs> I think it's an actual awareness that allows you to be honest. I think you can hold both of those things. But the thing that is, I'm not surprised that you have Scorpio because I knew it was either Taurus or Scorpio because of your love of home and food and really, really good fabric, which are things that I am also obsessed with. And I don't think we get to talk to you about that enough. And so, you know, I've heard that you have legendary dinner parties. I may have been to one. But I was wondering, could you ever see yourself you know, having, making content, you know, are you going to have a dreams dinner party as a show or, you know, <laughs> do you see yourself pursuing, you know, a film about fashion or, you know, is there, are these hobbies only, or do you think they would come into your professional life? You know, I went to sleep the other day thinking about a film about Bell Hooks um, because Someone is telling me that it's kind of urgent that that happens soon. And I remember thinking um, before I went to sleep, wow, the only profile that I've ever wanted to do on someone was of Ray Kawakabu, you know, the legendary um, designer Mm -hmm. from um, Comme des Garçons. Um, Her and Yoji Omamato, quite frankly, were like, (laughs) are just two artists that I think about all the time. and I absolutely, you know, you talk about fabrics and just this concept of draping and tailoring. Like, I mean, Alexander McQueen, like, you know, what a loss, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, so, I mean, for sure, I would love to do that. Our, our mutual friend, Mer McConnell, was like, I should do Dream Hamptons, Living Your Best Life. <laughs> 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 so I am happy to have that reputation. And I, even if it's a secret, even if it's like not what people imagine me doing, they might 
imagine me at home. My daughter used to say, stop fighting the internet. So they might like imagine me at home, like getting in fights with people all the time. But really, yeah, what I'm doing is like trying out new recipes and, um, and gathering my friends. And for my birthday, we went to an oyster farm and we had like, I don't know, it must've been 200 oysters. We had them grilled and cooked raw. And then my friend Rashad Robinson, who when he's not saving the world, is an incredible chef and he just cooks up the like best swordfish steak I've ever had. Um, so yeah, no, I love that. I love travel and I have thought, I mean, I have friends, uh, ghetto gastro who mm-hmm. like move through the world in a similar way. My friend, John Gray, and we love to like meet up in places in the world and go to some amazing restaurant. And I, yeah, I would love to make some content around that. I haven't pitched it, but yeah, it would be <laughs> way better than some of this really depressing stuff that I've been pitching. Yeah. So I was in a workshop with Adrian Marie Brown, I don't know, probably a decade ago, and I'm paraphrasing and probably getting it wrong, but she said something about the moment that we were in, and this was like 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, already being in the apocalypse, right? That we should consider that we have, we are in it. And she, you know, thought about Detroit, but this workshop was in some other city and, you know, just sort of thinking about many of our urban centers. And I was wondering how, what is your sort of overview or perspective on that coming from Detroit, you know, working with a lot of those same folks, obviously as Adrian and, you know, reading Grace Lee Boggs and Octavia Butler and so many people, I think in this particular moment in 2020, finally sort of being able to grasp that and wondering, you know, what your perspective is. Yeah. I mean, we have had for the longest time and, we've not framed it this way, and this goes back to this concept of storytelling, is we've had capitalism on its knees, you know? And so these real crises, you know, that have come up, whether it's Katrina, whether it's, um, you know, 2008, um, the financial crash, whether it's COVID, you know, and this idea that 80% of New York restaurants may not reopen, right, really lays bare, you know, how threadbare, you know, capitalism is. And so when we have the collapse of, say, the so-called collapse of communism, meaning that, you know, the Soviet kind of, you know, just disintegrated, um, that was on the cover of Time magazine. And and Reagan was like this huge hero for having somehow defeated communism. We know, of course, that China, which is the world's strongest economy and the most populous nation and probably building the world's strongest military, is is communist, you know, even as they play with capitalism. Um, But we still have this story that communism had failed. And we don't have those headlines around, like, the failure of capitalism. Mm. And in 2010, capitalism was absolutely on its knees. And in places like Detroit, it was impossible to pretend that that wasn't happening. and, you know, the lungs of the planet are literally collapsing and we're dealing with a pandemic. You know, we're talking right now remotely. We probably would have been doing this in person if we could. Um, but we're doing that because we're dealing with the disease that literally collapsed the lungs of the planet. And so I'm, I'm thinking of all those things always. Um, you know, I'm someone who used to have book clubs around Octavia Butler 
And I really like that genre, whether it's Cormac McCarthy. You know, I read post-apocalyptic, near-future dystopias, and I always have. My mother used to read Dune and sci-fi, Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and cheesy, you know, sci-fi written by men who were all about the terror of like a conquering and enslaving army. And so discovering someone like Octavia Butler, who to bring it back to Adrian Marie Brown, which is where you began this question, and to have you know that in in common with with Adrian, this love of Octavia, and to have this whole new generation discover Octavia, because mm-hmm. um, Octavia is not the best writer, you know, she doesn't have these flourishes like a Toni Morrison. It's not like you read a sentence of hers and go. Well, you, I mean, you can do this. You can absolutely be like, wow, that was profound. Mm-hmm. But it's not because of some lyrical, you know, she's a very straightforward writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I remember, you know, trying to like push her on my friends. And it was the heyday of like the best Black, you know, literature coming out of Black women's pens, you know, the 80s and 90s. Um, and not a lot of my friends were in. They were like, no, let's read Tony K. Bambara. Let's read Tony Morrison. And I was like, yes, let's, but also let's read Octavia. So it's amazing to see like Octavia get the love that she's, you know, that she had that kind of vision, that worldview of like what's possible, like in terms of cadres, in terms of rethinking vertical and hierarchical structures and leadership, um, in terms of like trusting the youth to lead as young people Mm -hmm. um, and trusting Black women to lead. You know, you are so spirited, as my grandmother would say, right? And um, in pursuit of justice at all costs in all these different facets. And, you know, that's expending energy, right? That's expending resources often. It's expending so much of you. And I'm curious how you find refuge, how you you know, um, find solace and take care of dream? Um, I, no, I don't. I, I mean, as a Virgo, I guess what I do is I put more work on top of the work. Like, so yes, I'm looking at like justice and trauma. And then there's this generation now that's demanding that we also look, do this interior work that I didn't do, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm like, knee deep in that like in my middle age like looking at um you know places where I may abuse power places where I um may be being abusive where I may be um not being just you know so that has been a big part of the work you know is and that's what Gracie Boggs asked us to do is to like examine ourselves this this idea of this self-revolution it came at a time where I wasn't ready to hear it because I was so sick of all of the self-help I mean there came a time when we turned away from all that wonderful literature I was talking about that we all read I can remember being on 125th street or down in the village and these brothers would be out there with incense and all these books and then I don't know if it was the coldest winter but something happened and then it was just like thug love you know <laughs> and then the books became they went from like this urban fiction, which was fine, to like, um, I don't know, self-help books and memoirs only. And when Grace would talk about this interior work that needed to be done, 
I thought that was a way of like not having the sociopolitical, you know, conversations that I had learned the way that I had learned to have them. And that it was this touchy feely soft thing that wasn't for me, you know, because it's not like we over index and in intellectualism and we needed to then focus on you know, emotional intelligence. Like America has never been intellectual. We've always been anti-intellectual. So I very much rejected that kind of like self-help um, track. And and I realized that I couldn't anymore, that things kept coming up about how I personally was making people feel, like the kind of dynamic they had either in collaborating with me on like art or like campaigns and that that there had to be real shifts in that. You know, this this kid who was like, I have to be the doctor or I have to be the teacher, you know, to bring it full circle, that ego, quite frankly. Mm. Um, and so that has been like the, the big self-care for me has been like, you know, and, and I'm really critical. And so Virgos, I mean, most, most people don't know that Virgos are more critical on themselves than probably anyone else. Can well, I do be, because my mother know? is a Virgo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm so happy that you survived having a Virgo mother. Um, but um, that, you know, so that has been the work, you know, and I, I don't believe this is my first lifetime here. And so I figured that in this lifetime, in addition to the world's problems, I would also like really do, do some interior work. And that's ongoing. and. But it feels like self-care, you know, it, that mining and that like releasing and healing and like taking out this little child and setting her in front of me and telling her that she's safe, that things aren't going to all go wrong and she's not controlling and micromanaging everything, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> that has been like the work, right? The self-care. I mean, I am, me and Invincible, another mutual friend of ours, we joke because Il has this boat, you know, that they own cooperatively with other friends, but we call ourselves like revolutionary ballers. So <laughs> I am definitely the type that will go to Auntie or, you know, take care of myself. So mm -hmm. no one has to worry about that part of me. Like I can unplug. I know how to turn the world off. I know how to make a really great tea. Um... I have a really deep bathtub that I can swim in. So I take care of myself in those ways. But it's been that interior, that mining work that I've had to do. I, I really appreciate how much of an open book you are. And I know the millennials appreciate transparency, but it is really valuable because it is so instructive for us um, in so many ways. And you've lived a thousand lives already. And I'm so excited to see the ones that you continue to do so. And yeah, thank you so much for the work that you do. You. Thank you for listening to this episode of Many Lumens. Visit us at manylumens.com to subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Many Lumens. Many Lumens is brought to you by Blackstar. This episode was produced by Patrice Worthy and Farah Rahaman, edited by David Adams and Heidi Simon, and engineered by Mike Mahalik. Our music supervisor is Rashid Zakat. Our theme song was composed by Vijay Mohan and remixed by David DJ Little Dave Adams. Sending you light and see you next time. <laughs>